This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Justin Malone. So he is a film director, editor, and cinematographer. And at the age of 22, he launched Malone Pictures. And he is the director of the documentary Uncle Tom and the recently released sequel to Uncle Tom, and that's Uncle Tom 2. And so I'm actually... You know, I'm actually going to actually read the description of Uncle Tom 2 from the back of the DVD. I still got it in the plastic because I want to just kind of maintain it. I'm probably going to give it away as a gift at some point. But let me go ahead and read about this documentary here. Uncle Tom 2 is an odyssey depicting the gradual demoralization of America through Marxist infiltration of its institutions. The film explores how this deceptive ideology has torn apart the fabric of society while using black America as its number one tool for its destruction. From executive producer Larry Elder and director Justin Malone comes a continuation of their highly acclaimed film Uncle Tom from 2020. Uncle Tom 2 will take the audience deeper into black America's often eradicated history of honorable men entrepreneurship, prosperity, faith, and patriotism to its current perceived state of anger, discontent, and victimhood. Uncle Tom 2 unveils the Marxist strategy of creating false racial tension between Americans with its ultimate goal of obtaining power, destroying capitalism, and replacing God with government. So again, Uncle Tom 2. Um, the, the cool thing about this film is I was actually able to go to its world premiere in Dallas on August the 26th. So I was working with her team to get some of the people on the show here for you, and I've got some more coming in. So around the time that you see this interview come out, you'll also see one with Chad Jackson, Chad O. Jackson, who was uh, one of the featured cast members of this film. But I was invited to go down to Dallas, and so it was kind of a cool deal, you know, going to a world premiere and, you know, wasn't able to travel with the wife because we got the kiddos right now. So just made a quick trip down to Dallas. I got to spend some time with my boy, Eddie Penny, who's been on the show several times. I was on his podcast, which should be out by the time you guys listen to this. And I go to the theater early because I had nothing else to do. And so it's like, okay, I'll go and I'm sitting in the parking garage or go get something to eat. And so I didn't know what to do. And so I was going to go into the theater and just kind of chill for a little bit. I didn't really know what to expect. And when I walk in, uh, there's basically no one there, but in the coffee shop to the left, I see Colonel Allen West. I see Jesse Lee Peterson. I see Brandon Tatum. They're all just kind of sitting there. And so I'm like, all right, I guess I'm hanging out with you guys. So I walk up to Colonel Allen West and I say, hey, I think we're here for the same thing. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure we are. And so uh, he introduced me to the uh, to Jesse and to Brandon. And we got to chat with them for a little bit. Um, got to hang out with them and their team and some of the other people that were in the film. Um, you know, got to kind of see the behind the scenes stuff of, you know, how to pull off a premiere, which is kind of interesting. Met some really cool people. Got to see the film there. I was sitting next to my boy, Chad Prather. So shout out to Chad from Blaze TV. And, um, man, it was such a powerful film. Um, it was kind of hard to process because it was so powerful, but there were so many sticky moments. Like as I'm driving back home from Dallas, I'm like, man, you know, what about this? And what about that? And then I watched it again before I did this interview. It's just such an unbelievably important film that all of you have to see, especially if you've bought into any of the current narratives around race in America, because this film is made you know, and features prominently all these black conservatives and Christians, because I asked them about in this film, you know, Vody Bauckham's in this version of the film. And you also have Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, both alums of the podcast. But then you have all these great people talking about the plight that has befallen the black community, as it were, here in the United States and how it got there, because the things that undergird that are maybe not what we would think. 
So in this interview with, with Justin Malone, the director, we talk about kind of how the, the first project came about, uh, kind of how this one came about, how, you know, black folks are looking at particular um, role models and culture, how, you know, people are taking advantage of this community and exploiting it and how there was a lot of of. Uh, folks in America, black people that were very wealthy and very well-to-do at different points. And then kind of what happened to kind of break down the structure of the black community and started with their faith and then turned into to their families as well. I really, really enjoyed the time. And, and towards the end, we talk about future projects and there's some very interesting stuff coming up on those f- uh, future projects. And we're just so glad to bring all that to you guys. But before we go any further, I've got to remind you guys about my friends over at KC Cattle Company. Guys, I know you're going to get tired of hearing ads from other places, but you're never going to get tired of hearing about ads from a place that specializes in delicious meat. So guys, there are a lot of meat delivery subscription services out there. You've heard a lot of them advertised on other shows, but again, only one of them is U.S. military veteran owned, U.S. military veteran operated, and all of their beef, chicken, and pork products are produced here in the United States, and that is KC Cattle Company. So guys, they specialize in Wagyu beef. So I'd heard of it before, but Wagyu beef is a breed of cattle known for its mutations that allow for like 10 times the amount of intramuscular fat. So what does that lead to? It leads to that beautiful marbling that you want to see on your steak you want to see on your roast. That is where you get all of the good stuff in your steaks. And guys, here recently, I made some of their Wagyu beef patties. I made some Wagyu burgers. So I make them on a Blackstone. I love cooking on a hot cooktop like that. I'll put down a little bit of oil, a little bit of butter. I'll squish the, the meat down there on there. You know, I get it real thin and real crispy. So I do like a minute, minute and a half per side. And I use, you know, coarse salt and pepper and a little bit of garlic powder. And I make these amazing, amazing burgers. And guys, burgers with Wagyu beef, there's just something different. Like I grew up with not really fancy fancy meat options that were made in my house. So I feel super, super fancy eating this stuff, but that's not all that they guys, all that these guys produce, but they sell everything from Wagyu steaks to Wagyu roast, pasture-raised chicken, pasture-raised Berkshire pork, Wagyu bacon cheeseburger brats, which are amazing. And, and, and I always have to mention the now world-famous Wagyu gourmet hot dogs. Food & Wine magazine actually called these the best hot dogs in the world. I can say that I definitely agree with that. They even called them a tube steak, which is really, really awesome because it basically tastes like a steak on a bun. But you guys have got to try out their products. So go to kccattlecompany.com. That's kccattlecompany.com. Use the promo code Kyle to get 15% off of your order. Again, that promo code is just my first name, Kyle. That's K-Y-L-E for 15% off of your order at kccattlecompany.com. But I'm not going to keep in front of you any longer. So guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Justin Malone, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you. It was so great to meet you last week. I talked about in the intro how uh, we met at the premiere of the film that we're going to be spending the majority of our time talking about today. But I do like to kind of ease into things in case people don't always know you. And it's always good to hear from the horse's mouth kind of how you got into what you're doing. So as a way of introduction, give us an idea of how you got into the film industry because it's from the outside looking in, it's a really sexy industry and the lights and the, the you know finished product and all that. And I guess what specifically drew you to directing? Well, uh, my both of my parents are movie lovers, and they raised me going to the movies. So I have always been in love with film. My mom was more into the old classic Hollywood, Jimmy Stewart, Marlon Brando, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. So I grew up watching those old films, and she really uh, taught me how to enjoy a film. My dad would always take us to the films, so uh, you know. So I grew up going. I remember seeing Last of the Mohicans in the movie theater, and yeah, you know, even even some stuff maybe I shouldn't have saw. You know, we would go to Oliver Stone films, and 
So, you know, I just always grew up. And then the early 90s, when my brain was coming online, I feel is one of the greatest times of cinema. So you had just these great Hollywood dramas, Shawshank Redemption, Forrest mm -hmm. Gump, Tarantino was, was coming out, uh, Darren Aronofsky. Well, that was a little later, but you, it was just a beautiful little moment. And I feel like one of the, for me personally, the greatest moment in Hollywood history is those early 90s films. I feel like that's where it peaked. Uh, it was a good time to be a kid, a lot of good films. And, you know, when I was about 16, my buddy, my best friend got a video camera. It was a high eight video camera. So we started playing with that and we would make little movies. And I discovered I had a knack for it. And we would show these little skits to people at parties and we'd lug our VHS tapes around and people, you know, so I just got, I got hooked, you know, uh, entertaining people and, and making films. And so when I was about 16, I knew I wanted to be a film director and I've been pursuing it ever since. I think that's awesome. And I, th I think you're right. I never really thought about it in those terms, but in terms of the nineties and film, like right now I get, I get so not overwhelmed, but I'm just bored with a lot of the movies that come out, the movies you're supposed to like and go to the movies to see. It's like, how many times can we rinse and repeat the the superhero thing? Like, I just don't yeah. understand why people still go to those movies. I want stuff that's grittier. And that's why I'm drawn more so to documentaries, especially documentaries that take on really, really tough subject matters. And so we're going to be spending the majority of the time today talking about Uncle Tom 2, but I do want to go back to Uncle Tom 1. So I guess give us the, the Sparknote version of where the idea for the Uncle Tom documentary came from. How did you specifically get involved? You know, what does that documentary cover? Go. Well, I was uh, personally, I, I had been trapped, I guess, in the advertising industry. I had some success in commercials and got kind of swept into that world. Mm. There's a lot of money in that. There's a, you know, it's kind of glamorous in some ways. And I kind of, always thought that, well, I would build my production company up and one day I would have the resources and the means to make films. Mm. But the, the years just kind of flew by. And I guess in 2016, I was going through some spiritual changes. Uh, our culture was in a very strange place. I had always leaned conservative, but kept my mouth shut in the very liberal industry that I was uh, trying to build my career in. So around the time, you know, and I always, I was always making films, even if it was just short films, I always had a creative project going. But around 2015, 2016, when our country was in that chaotic time, mm. I was always paying attention to black conservatives and as far back as Herman Cain, that's really where I saw the hypocrisy of yeah. how black conservatives were treated in our country. I was too young to pick up on the Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill thing. I learned about that later. So, you know, I was curious about why Barack Obama was so loved. And then two and a half years after that, Herman Cain was just destroyed. They right. destroyed his his reputation and his legacy. Or they tried to. So that's where the seed came from. Fast forward, you know, the Trump uh, fiasco. 
but I noticed that the media ramped up the whole racial angle and they, they painted this man who'd been in all of our lives, nineties movies, right? I mean, Trump was mm-hmm. just part of our culture, a New Yorker, uh, a rich, uh, real estate guy, but now they're, they're kind of framing him as this, uh, white Southern bigot KKK kind of guy. So, I mean, by that time I knew the deal, but through that you had people like Candace Owens, uh, Brandon Tatum, you had these young millennial conservatives that had a different kind of uh, vibe about them, a different grit. And so I just started following them and, you know, it, I was in, it was kind of like that perfect storm where it's like, I needed a subject. I needed, to, I needed a story to tell. And I, I said, well, let's interview black conservatives. So we did just that. My producer that I was working with, I still work with writer Ansel reached out to the Republican party of Dallas or Texas, whatever it was. And we got a couple names and we got on the phone and for some, some way it led us to Chad Jackson, mm. who's a plum, who was a plumber. He had a, a company down in Lancaster, Texas. He agreed to interview with us. We went in, uh, talked to him for about two hours on camera. And that was it. After I left that interview, I said, this is, this is the movie that I'm going to make. And I took that, I took that interview. I cut together about an 11 minute segment proof of concept. And I went to Los Angeles. I got a meeting with Jesse Lee Peterson. He agreed to do the film and by God's grace and Providence, I had been trying to get a hold of Larry Elder for several months mm-hmm. through messenger. And he just so happened to respond to me while I was in Los Angeles. And I went to Larry Elder's house, interviewed with him. We stayed in touch. I filmed with Larry a second time, a couple months later, and we were just talking and he was like, what are you doing with this project? And I had, I had that little segment that I had cut. I was like, would you like to see what I'm, what I'm thinking? And Larry uh, watched it uh, in his studio on his phone. We watched it on the phone and I could tell he was reacting to it. Hmm. And I said, would you like to come on board and help me produce this? He said, absolutely. We had dinner the following night and here we are, you know, Larry jumped on board and just opened a lot of doors for me. He was able to raise the money very quickly and he just put a lot of faith in me and he backed me and he's still backing me to this day. So that's, that was the origin of part one of, you know, just kind of going for it and um, letting go of um, some idols and letting go of a, of a career that hadn't gone the way I wanted it to go and really just stepping out there and trusting God and, and going for it. And I think that's awesome. In the first film, like you mentioned a lot of these people, but yeah, Larry Elder, Chad O. Jackson, Brandon Tatum, Colonel Allen West, Herman Cain, Candace Owens, Robert Woodson, Carol Swain, Jesse Lee Peterson, and on and on and on. And then you get into the sequel. So I want to know why do the sequel, but there's an interesting thing about the sequel to me. And again, guys, it is in the show notes. You need to go and check out this film. It is absolutely worth your time, whether you stream it by the DVD or both, who gives a crap, you're going to do it. But the thing that's interesting is there are some notable additions to the second cast, okay? So you have Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker. They both have been on this podcast before, prominent black conservatives, but also prominent uh, black Christians as well. But then also the one and only, the the lion, Vody Bauckham Jr., okay? So the second film does 
and, and maybe this goes back to the reason why you would do a sequel. The second film does what many conservative projects that I've seen, especially lately, won't seem to do. And that is to explicitly make this a spiritual issue. Like prominently, I think of Matt Walsh's What is a Woman, which is a fantastic film, but they avoided the spiritual or biblical realm entirely because they wanted it to stand on its own two feet. They didn't want people to just be able to wave their hand over it and dismiss it. And so to not hide behind the, the vagaries of quote unquote morality, but to specifically discuss Christian morality and the gospel. So I, I guess... Why make the why make the sequel? But why do that? And, and why the addition of these prominent black men that are specifically from the Christian space? Well, since the films cover black history, it's impossible to tell that story without Christianity. I mean, the black history in America is is its roots are in Christianity and the black community has always been a community of Christian heritage and, and, and Christian faith. For me personally, my spiritual journey was really beginning right before I started Uncle Tom too. You know, my personal life was in shambles. You know, my my company, my marriage, everything was just falling apart for me. And you know, I, I had a I had a God moment. He revealed Himself to me, and and then that you know, so that was the beginning of my journey. Uh, you know, my faith walk kind of came through politics. Ironically, you know, um, I had become a full blown atheist by the time I was sixteen, and um very hardcore. I, I felt anyone that believed in God was silly. I mean, I went really, really far into that. But when I was in my early 20s, I started kind of shifting conservative in my politics. And so that led me to talk radio and some of these personalities who were political, but every now and then you would hear them talk about their faith in God and their belief in God. And then as you start loving America and you start understanding the Constitution, God is all in our constitution. God is all in our founding. Mm -hmm. And that's the one thing I feel that makes us different than, you know, any other country in the history of this, of this, of, of, of the world. So as we, you know, as we were getting into part two, uh, and Chad and, and my friendship was growing, like Chad's, you know, very faithful. And so our conversations, you know, there was a lot of fellowship in our, in our conversations and my brother, Ryan, who's very, very spiritual, very Christian, very theologically sound. He was with me during, as I was finishing part one. And so I was teaching him politics with my film. He was teaching me theology. Mm. And right as I was finishing up, he's like, man, I wish you would have got Vody Bauckham for this film. Mm. Have you, and I'd never heard that name. And he showed me some videos and I was like, wow, you know, the guy really, understood Marxism in a, in a way I'd never heard. And I mean, obviously it's Vody Bauckham. He's very poised, very articulate. One of the, the, the greatest, you know, pastors of our time. So, but I'd already finished the film. Fast forward, we get into part two. And I think one of the very first conversations that we had, Chad's like, what do you think about getting Vody Bauckham? I said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, let's get that guy. And uh, my producer reached out. And he responded and he 
turns out he had been a fan of part one and he agreed to let us interview him. And, you know, I'm glad he did because I think his contribution to part two is, is could be life changing for some people. It's so hefty. Like when I was sitting in the theater watching it, like, so I remember Justin, when I saw the teaser image, the first teaser image I saw that uncle Tom two was coming had Vody Bakum on it. And I was like, no freaking way. Yes. Like I was so excited. And, you know, I agree with you that I think that he is one of the most important pastors of our time and more and more people are coming to that realization. And he also delivers the most memorable line of the entire film, in my opinion. And it was right before the title screen appears. This is about 12, 12 and a half minutes into the film. And I want to read his quote here. It's this. Images are powerful. You look on churches, powerful images of saints and figures from the Bible, and the goal to communicate the meta narrative of Scripture, who we are, why we're here, and what's wrong with the world, and how can what is wrong be made right. Your worldview, your religion answers those questions. What we're seeing today is another religion communicating another meta narrative and another worldview. And these murals are the stained glass windows of this new religion. Now, the murals he's referring to are the murals of, uh, you know, Michael Brown or George Floyd or any of these other people that in, in a lot of circumstances were killed while in police custody, but were not murdered by racist white police officers that were out hunting them that day. And a lot of people that are in that community, and I'm always a little bit weird about saying the black community because it's made up of a bunch of individuals, but just for, for ease of terminology, when the black community kind of comes around these people and lionizes people like that, it becomes a major issue. And for me, that was a jumping off point for the rest of the film. Is that why you kind of put it right before the title screen? Definitely. Uh, yeah. I mean, that whole conversation evolved. We shot uh, vote that Vody interview was the same day that we shot Daryl and Virgil. And we were at a uh, founders conference. We had just got back from Baltimore, Chad Ryder and myself. And well, they were in Baltimore and they had shot a bunch of these murals and it was kind of dawning on us. Like why does every neighborhood inner city neighborhood have these giant murals of Trayvon Martin and, and, and these guys. So the conversation was around that because it was kind of fresh in our minds and I feel like they all delivered, but that when Vody like likened it to stained glass windows and likened it to religion, yeah, it's exactly what it is. And for me, Uncle Tom, too, if you peel it back far enough, it's God versus man. You right. can get into the weeds with all the nuances, and but it's you either follow God or you follow man. And that's, that's what the film's about for me, and that's why that line of Vody Bauckham takes us into the film. When it sets you up, again, I'm not a cinematographer, so I'm not going to, you know, go too far outside of my lane here, but just the imagery of being able to show, transpose the images of these murals with stained glass windows and kind of go back and forth. It was very visually powerful for me for a film that is, you know, completely in black and white, but it's so interesting when you're looking at these stained glass windows, you're not seeing them in black and white. You're seeing them how you normally see them, which is with this unbelievable mosaic and array of colors. And so I think that that's very important as well. But you talk about the struggle between man and God. God. And that's where you start getting into the world of Marxism, communism, humanism, secular humanism, all those different things. And you do talk about in the film about how humans are so susceptible 
to these utopian ideas of Marxism, communism, on so on and so forth. And it's because we want the gifts of the Father without the Father. We want the blessings without acknowledging where they come from. And so I guess this is somewhat of an unfair question because it could open us up to a three-hour philosophical discussion. But why are humans so susceptible to utopian ideas, and yet they can't just make that one little mind shift to be like, these are just the good gifts of God? Well, another Vody line in the film you know, what these ideologies do is they erase God while trying, while fulfilling that desire in the heart to see all things made right. Right. So, you the know, cosmic justice that a Thomas Sowell or someone else would write about saying, like, if, if you don't believe there is cosmic justice, you have to demand justice on this planet and you're willing to throw Molotov cocktails to get it. Yeah. And I, if you look at Marx, his, the, the step one in Marxism is removing people from God. Mm-hmm. And once you do that, you know you're, you're able to fill that 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 vacuum with because we're because we're all wired, we're all built to to worship God, to um, give glory to God. But the further we get away from Him, you still have those desires, and you still have that need, and you still have a need for a savior. But if you don't know, if you've been captured by these these uh, ideologies and you're not familiar with scripture and you're not familiar with God's word, then you're susceptible. And mm-hmm. I think that's what's happened in our country. I think America is fascinating. I think why uncle Tom too is, is so fascinating is because America has been such a tough nut to crack. If you look at the history of communism and Marxism, the, the Eastern, the, the, the East was very easy to capture right? Asia, you know, China, Vietnam, because they weren't starting with a Christian worldview. It's been the West that has been a slow, gradual shift. Because in my opinion, if you, you know, when it comes to Americans, if you know the Constitution, and you know, American history, and you know, the Bible, you cannot be controlled, you can, you just can't. And so they realized that uh, 120 years ago, and they've been just chipping away at us a little bit at a time. I think you're absolutely right. And it goes into something else that you talk about in the film. And that's the role that mandatory government education plays in all this. Okay. So, cause again, we, we love to lament and, and this is pointed out beautifully in the film and guys, just as a side note, we can't get into every single part of the film today because we, we don't want to go over all that. Cause then you're not going to want to watch it, but I do want to hit some of the, the high points and leave some meat on the bone. Uh, you'll certainly know what I mean later when we get into some stuff towards the end, but the education system, the fact that we're lamenting that you can't have prayer in school or Bible reading in school misses the point that we shouldn't have government school to begin with. That the reason why you don't see education talked about in the Constitution is because education was handled in the home. It was handled by the local community, by the church community. So I guess, Justin, what does the role of mandatory government education play in all this kind of tilt towards the Marxist ideas we're seeing? Well, it, it creates social justice mindset. It creates social justice warriors. The, the brilliance of Marxism and these worldviews is that these people that, that have this worldview, they understand human nature. They understand psychology. And so in Uncle Tom 2, it was important to show that once government education was formed, they didn't just, you know, pull the plug. You were able to pray in public schools until the 60s. So it, it, 
they knew step one was just to create a federal public school system and gradually over time move us in the direction they want to go. And our lives are very short, so it only takes a couple of generations for your history to be rewritten, your morality, your faith, uh, the things that hold you together to be shifted. And that's why for a lot of people in our country right now, the last five years have just been such a shock and they don't know how we ended up here. They don't know what's going on, but it, they've been working at this for a very long time. And it's just incredible how, for me personally, you know, I'm almost 40 years old. I'm just now learning this history myself. Right. It, you know, by making these films and, and meeting these incredible people, I'm just now learning our nation's history real history. I'm, I'm just now learning the gospels. So, you know, if, if you look back in the before mandatory government education, just read, this is something I tell, just read Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. People act like we've evolved. Read. Yeah. I was watching Ken Burns, uh, civil war. Right. Yeah. And, and he, and, he, and a big, a, a device he uses is he uses letters from real soldiers and they're sending these letters home. And these are Southern Confederate farmers or what have you. These are, these are uh, poor farmers or poor industrial workers that are fighting in this war, but the language is beautiful. The handwriting is beautiful. So we were so, so, we were so much more educated back then. And now, you know, I look at myself, like my vocabulary, I, like my oratory skills are nowhere near what they were. And mm-hmm. that's because we're public school educated. You know, we're, we don't learn phonics. We don't learn how to how to read properly, how to reason. So for myself personally, I'm just now catching up right now. And, you know, God has chosen me to be the vehicle to put these films together. But, you know, these things have changed me in every way. And, you know, I hope that people are getting getting what getting something out of these because it's new for us too. you know, we, we're not like some master historians. It's like we're learning all this stuff for the first time as well. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I would say that it's it's a far it's a foregone conclusion that people are getting something out of this because I'm with you. Like I remember, I did everything I could in school to not read the books, right? I would le- I would read the spark notes of whatever chapters we were going over for you know, uh, you know, Lord of the the Flies or Fahrenheit 451 or whatever, and I just wouldn't just read the damn book. And it was like, you know, now I'm like I'm going back and reading these books it's like you idiot. Like you could have known some of these things. You could have picked stuff out of animal farm and you would have had it as old hat inside your brain, as opposed to reading it in your mid thirties and having your mind blown. But part of the thing is, is when you see these man on the street videos, which I'm sure you've seen a lot of those and people get asked the most basic of questions. How many States are there? Like what ocean is on the East coast of the United States? Who was the first president? You know, just different things like that. And kids, young people, kids in college have no idea. And so it's not too tough to extrapolate that out to the Holocaust 
or all the horrors of the 20th century, you know, that befell people in China or Cambodia or Vietnam or Germany or, or the Soviet Union or anywhere. And it's because our kids aren't learning it. So I think that's something that your films are doing. But also one thing that your film does, Justin, is that you highlight several people in the film that are in some way responsible for what we're seeing today. But these people aren't household names, okay? And I'm gonna say some of them, obviously, you know, because you, you can check it out in the film, guys. But one of those people is Saul Alinsky, okay? He plays a very prominent role in what we're seeing today in our current society and culture. So give us a primer on who Saul Alinsky is and why don't all Americans know who he is? Yeah, Saul Alinsky, I think in the conservative, you know, he's been in several conservative documentaries over the past several years. He is considered the father of community organizing, and he was a Marxist who was able to strategically go into industrial towns and mobilize the underclass, the, 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 the have-nots, and a lot of times this was, was Black Americans, and mobilize them to wreak havoc and create, you know, create problems in these towns. And I think he's the probably the most practical example of how Marxism works on, on, a, on a, a strategic level uh, to go in and, and create discontent and to create a class warfare or, or you know, oppressor, um, oppressed, um, conflict and friction. So what I think makes the Solinsky moment in Uncle Tom 2 special is that we were able to find some films that were shot in the 60s that I don't believe anyone's really seen. Th these were done by a Canadian film company and we found them in an archive. I can't remember which one we found those in, but I'd never seen this footage before. And he's very brash. He's very, uh, you know, almost bragging about his ability to wield these people to to do his bidding. So I, you know, I think that the I think that the footage is shocking people, and even people that study Marxism and know about Alinsky are su surprised that we were able to find this footage. Mm. And, um, you know, I think my theory is, is that in the 60s, they felt like they were winning. They felt like the revolution was 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 coming. And the same way we saw the. The arrogance of Black Lives Matter, that's kind of what you see in those film reels where they're able to reveal and, and kind of brag about their crimes and brag about their strategies on camera because they feel like the revolution is is coming. Well, and they brag about it because they know there won't be any consequences. And like, I've heard several, you know, conservative commentators, they're just like, man, it would be awesome to be a liberal for a day, just a day, because you can just say whatever you want. And there's not going to be any fact checks. There's not going to be any, well, this is what you said a week ago. And now you're saying something completely different. Do you care to explain? And so obviously they, they feel like they're a little bit insulated from all of those things. And again, to kind of even go a little bit further into the education point, um, there are names that 
kids may hear in their education, but they don't get an education on these on these people. And so two of the names that are featured prominently in the film are Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. And those are two guys that they may be names that you think of. And for a lot of people that may be like, oh, did one of those, are they inventors? Because, uh, you know, Black History Month, you hear all these inventors like, oh, a black guy invented peanut butter. Or, you know, you, you think it may be one of those guys. But those two and the struggle that they had with each other ideologically while they're alive is very indicative of the struggle today between most of the cast members of your two films, Uncle Tom, and everybody else in, yeah. in the quote unquote black community or the liberal community or whatever zeitgeist you want to define it as. And so again, we, we can't get into a deep dive on, on Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois right here, but why are those two people so important for Americans to understand and specifically the differences between the two philosophies of those men? Well, I think that's, that is why they are important is because they are, it couldn't be more clear the different worldviews mm. that those men had. And the reason why we spend so much time with them and Uncle Tom too is because it's, it's, it's the most, it's the easiest way to explain this is what happens when you follow God and you, you, you follow God's law mm. and you, as a man, you take care of your family, you take care of your community. And this is what happens without God. And when you demand rights and when you demand um, prosperity to be given to you. And I think the Harlem aspect of Uncle Tom too was probably one of my favorite parts of the film is because I had no idea that Booker T. Washington was so instrumental in building Harlem. It was it was it was his Negro Business League and the the men that he was training up that went into the north and made these prosperous neighborhoods. They were taking that Tuskegee thought process and we can see the fruit of it. We have film. If you look at film of Harlem in the 1930s, the streets are clean, everyone's dressed beautifully, suits, hats, mm -hmm. And fast, you know, go 20, 30 years as Booker T. Washington, I mean, I'm sorry, as W.E.B. Du Bois philosophy starts to take hold. And what do you see? You see rotted out buildings. You see trash everywhere. You see despair. You see anger. So I think that it's very important to tell that story because there's not a, a more clear way to see what these two different ideology and two different worldviews produce. Yeah. Basically what comes from those things, like both of those things create a ripple effect. And then it's like, can we just compare these things to one another and say, which of these things would you prefer? And so it seems like a lot of people in modernity are kind of doubling down on stupid. And part of it is because they don't know their history and they don't understand the narrative that they have been swept up into. And one of the biggest things, because I'm born and bred Oklahoman, and so uh, everything that has to do with Oklahoma history, I'm very, very interested in. But there's one piece of Oklahoma history that has always bothered me. And I've always struggled to, to really put my finger on the narrative. And that's the Tulsa race riots, which have now been renamed and rebranded, I guess you can say, as the Tulsa race massacre. And so in the documentary, you go right at the heart of the narrative of the Tulsa race. We'll just call it the massacre because we'll use uh, their terminology that they use. And so- there are a lot of things that are wrong 
with the commonly held beliefs about what happened in Oklahoma in 1921. And to be honest with you, I had bought in to the narrative that was being fed to me uh, for the most part, because it's like, look, I've got a lot of things going on, raising a family, running a business, doing all that. I didn't have a whole lot of time to dig into the weeds on the Tulsa race riots to get a fully fledged opinion because it just hadn't come up in my work, honestly, Justin. But after I watched that film, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so stupid because I wasn't aware of some of the things that came just a few years after these incidences. So if you could, you know, just in a minor way, because I do want to leave some meat on the bone. So guys yeah. go and watch the film. What is wrong with most of the commonly held beliefs of, about what happened in Tulsa in 1921? Well, we did a really deep dive on Tulsa and I was kind of struggling with how much of it to put into the film because you could make an entire documentary on You can make a that. series. Yeah. You could. And the deception and the things that, you know, that are unknown to all of us. But we put the puzzle together. But I chose to just choose one aspect to talk about. And I believe as we make more of these films that we're going to spend more time there. But the important thing to me was to realize that even if you accept the narrative that's been given to us, even if you buy into it, that white people just hated black people and that white people were willing to just do this heinous act, what happened with black people in Tulsa? They mm -hmm. rebuilt. They rebuilt in less than five years. And it's and the footage is bigger and, and, and I mean, the, the footage shows that Tulsa was bigger and better than it was before. Now, the reason why that was important for me is because in my research, when you watch stories about Tulsa, the footage that we found is shown to the audience as what Tulsa was before this massacre, before the riot happened. Right, right. <clears throat> well, we found that footage. We found all of the film reels by that were shot by a pastor named Solomon Sir Jones. He shot about 16, he shot six hours of 16 millimeter in the early 1920s all over the South. I mean, but he was from Oklahoma. So there was a lot of footage from Oklahoma. He had the foresight to slate all the footage. So before he shoots every bit of footage, he has this board. He tells you what the date is where he's at and what's happening in the footage, Wh whose farm he's at, whose oil uh, uh, well he's he's at, what city he's at. The, and so as we're like going through it, we're, we're seeing this footage for the first time. And initially it was just like, oh my God, look at all this, this black prosperity. And mm -hmm. it was everywhere in the South. So that was the first kind of high we got from discovering this man's footage. It wasn't until later when we're in Tulsa, where he shows a Negro Business League parade happening in Tulsa, 1925. And then the whole film reel is Tulsa in 1925. And right. that's when the light bulb went on. It's like, well, 1921, it was burnt down. Mm -hmm. Then we find out there's the footage of men working. That's them rebuilding Tulsa. So for me, the important part for part two that I wanted to show is that Black America had yet to be demoralized in 1921. Black America, so even if we accept the narrative of Tulsa, what did they do? 
they got back to work. They made it better. And they, they, they had that American spirit. And it's obvious why they would hide. This footage that this man shot should be in every school. Like, why am I finding six hours of black prosperity in an archive? Why? Well, it makes sense because if you're seeing black America living prosperous, normal, intact families, going to church, eating in restaurants, if you're showing that that life in the 1920s, that destroys the entire narrative that we've been told our whole life. Because every movie that I've seen growing up, you know, black people couldn't couldn't even walk down the street in the South in the 1920s. So that was that's what Tulsa was important to us. There is more to the story. There is a lot of things that will give more clarity of how that how that riot was started and who was behind that. But for this one, we wanted to just because this film is is showing the worldviews, we're gonna give them the narrative for now. Like you, okay, we'll give you your narrative. Mm-hmm. This was burned down. But even if that even if that's where the story ends what happened they rebuilt it and they went life went on in tulsa until the 1960s that's whenever tulsa started to fall apart it's so nefarious justin that the specifics of the 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 film reels being showed as what tulsa was like before this horribly racist incident when that was stuff that came after the rebuilding like that's the part that really gets me where it's like oh man this is not an accident now there are people that will accidentally use pictures and you know they'll use them out of chronological sure. order and they'll use films and like you so you have to give a little bit of a little bit of grace to that but that's not what we've seen you you would think over the last 100 years somebody would have noticed like oh that that film reel you're showing has a timestamp and it's way after when you're purportedly saying it is but one thing that you were getting into there Justin is you know basically this discussion about black culture and a lot of what we see in modernity is and you talk about this in the film is black culture equals victim culture. That's what people have been convinced to do. So officer Brandon Tatum or former officer Brandon Tatum, uh, he talked about that in the film and he specifically mentions how we, you know, lionize people like Jay-Z and Cardi B and George Floyd and these type of people. And these are people that don't check any or most of the moral and ethical boxes that we would see from role models of previous generations, even still within the black community. Like we have little kids that are trying to grow up to be Cardi B someday. Cardi B, the the woman that used to drug, uh, you know, men when she was a prostitute and steal money and jewelry from them. Like that's the, and she's never like said that was a bad thing and that she's repented of that lifestyle. Like that's what little girls are like. I want to be Cardi B someday. And it's just like, oh my gosh, it's so mind blowing. So talk to me a little bit about how a lot of black culture has been swept up with these kind of really bad examples of morality from some of these people. And, you know, a guy like George Floyd was a horrifically terrible human being that shouldn't have died that day, but he's somewhat culpable in his own death because of the things that he did and the decisions that he made that led up to even his interaction with that police officer. But how black culture is kind of fed into this overall victim narrative, even though people from that culture are looking at these highly successful black people that were successful in America, right? Well, I think that's the reason why we don't learn about Booker T. Washington in school. Hmm. But I mean, if you read up from slavery and his other books, you get the feeling that he's one of the most important Americans to ever live. 
he, what an incredible story. And so for a culture that is obsessed with race, obsessed with blackness and being black, why is he not put up on a pedestal? Uh, another point that has been made to several people that have watched the film is why have all these images that you guys have unearthed, like why were these buried? Mm. And the point is, is that if you can see something that inspires you, if you can see something, uh, if you can see a formula that works for prosperity, then you're going to strive to be that. And if you strive to be uh, independent and prosperous and live a decent life, then you don't live in fear and need people to take care of you and fight on your behalf. So it's very strategic. I mean, the first thing that, that dictators or anybody that wants to rule over you does is they erase your history. Hmm. And one of my favorite lines in the film is Dr. Carson. It's like, when you, when you don't know your history, you don't know where you come from and you don't know what your morals and your values are. And so when it comes to black America, this uh, debauchery and hip hop and drug use and gang banging, that's all been manufactured since around the 1930s, 40s, coming out of the Harlem Renaissance. And that that's some material that we're going to get into in part three. That's a big part of part three. And we, we had already assembled a lot of the storylines, but we felt that it was going a little bit too into the rabbit hole for people uh, to, to understand like how black culture and the black image was created mm. by most of the time white, Marxist, white socialist that exploited the lowest uh, end of the black culture and put them on a pedestal. And that, that's the thing with Uncle Tom one, I think what was so shocking for people is that blacks were conservative, right? Mm. Like I, when I was in production for that, people would come up to me and say, oh, where, you know, where'd you find them? Or, you know, <laughs> all, all three of them you put, you know, and it's like the, the thing is, is that there's always been black conservatives. It's just they're not put on television. They're not put in history books. They're, you know, they're not prominent in mainstream. I mean, look how Clarence Thomas is treated, you know, right. It's, Look how, you know, Herman Cain was treated, a man that was like grew up in the South, you know, that during the most oppressive time of American history, supposedly grew up in Atlanta during the 50s and 60s and went on to be a rocket scientist and a CEO. Why is he not celebrated? Right. You know, and so that in I think with black America, they were kind of the the testing ground. They were the low-hanging fruit, but it's happening to all America now. You know, it's not just black people. It's all of us are demoralized and, you know, growing up in homes without fathers in them. So they were just the starting point. So we can look look to, look at their history and, and learn from it. I mean, I absolutely think that is the big thing that when people do a univariate analysis of, say, a white police officer shooting a black person or of the plight of a particular population group, you can say, oh, there's there's racism here because look at this inequality. But then when you start digging several layers down deep, then you start getting into the family structure, the nuclear family and how the United States government basically was trying to woo 
women in the black community away from, uh, you know, the responsibility of being a mother inside of a marriage inside of the home, wooing the men out of the homes as well. But I, I guess the overall thing that I was thinking about with this movie as well is in this, the film certainly focuses on that is that over time, Black Americans were wooed away from Christianity, were wooed away from the church, were wooed away from the oppressive patriarchal nuclear family structure and towards daddy government. And we're going to let the daddy government take care of us and they're going to feed our kids and they're going to take care of us. And we don't need to do anything. I forget who said it in the film, but it's like when you drive around a lot of these neighborhoods, you see generations worth of black men standing on the street corners, not doing anything where if they are doing something, what they're doing is illegal. Uh, and then we're supposed to feel bad for them if they get caught up in some sort of a sting. So talk a little bit about that, about kind of that overall wooing process, because there's not really one person or one earthly entity that you could pin that on, but it's just been this progressive, you know, milieu of a combination of negative factors over the last several decades that have kind of got us here. Yeah. From, from you know, if you look, go back to the, the, the garden of Eden, it's like, how does Satan deceive Eve? You know, he, he twists the truth a little bit, hmm. you know, I mean, that's why we spent a lot, a lot of time in the film showing what, these ideologies are selling you. They're selling you utopia. I remember being in high school and the little bit that we learned about the different political systems, I remember communism making sense to me when I was 17 years old. Like, oh yeah, that's great. You know, every you know, everything's equal and every you know, everything's everything's fair. So it's not hard to sell people this dream of a utopia it's very easy and it's very hard once you've sold it to them to change their their mind away from it so i mean that's the that's the battle of the human experience right i mean that's what we've we've always we've always been going through so it's it's sad to see and i and i i feel like with america we kind of go in this loop where you know, because of capitalism, because of our, our founding documents, because of what we've already done and, and, and the fruit of our labor, we kind of have this prosperity that humans have never had before. And so we kind of let our guard down, you know, I mean, when you're eating three meals a day or more and, you know, you, you're 72 degrees all the time and you're just kind of going through this, this, this life of comfort, mm. you're you're easily, you know, led astray. And that's when these people can get in your ear, this evil force can get in your ear and start kind of slowly moving you in a direction. It's when we're on our knees is when we go to God, right? I mean, it's like, that's the human experience too. And I think right now you're seeing a lot of people my age and younger that are seeking out God. And, 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 you know, for my church, like I see, you know, more and more people uh, um, going to church and like your question earlier, uh, about us not shying away from hmm. God in this film. It's like you we can only we can only play in the secular space for so long before we have to just go to the truth. And the truth is is that you know the you know the world is broken and we need a savior and you know we have to have a foundation of truth and that foundation is scripture. So well, I think it was Vody that said it in the film. It's like, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. He no. went right to, right to the book. We're fighting against, you know, principalities and powers. And I think 
I again, I appreciate it as a Christian, as an evangelical, that that was a, a strong undertone of this film. And, and we've talked about other entities that don't do that type of a thing. But let's talk about the critical reception. I know that this hasn't been out for for that terribly long, but obviously there were people that got to see the pre-screen. There have been people that have been watching it over the last couple of weeks. And I did see that on uh, IMDb. It was like 9.9 out of a t- out of a 10 right now. And so, and no one pays attention to what the critics say on Rotten Tomatoes, but on the fan side, it's really high on Rotten Tomatoes as well. But just give us an idea of the good and the bad in terms of the critical reception for the second film. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as the, the reception, like review, the people that are watching Uncle Tom 2 are reacting to it. We've, we've done... Uh, about eight screenings uh people are reacting to it people are coming up to me afterwards so the people that are watching it uh are writing these incredible reviews it's almost like my mom wrote all of them right i mean it's it's all they're right. incredible and you, i wake up in the morning and they're they're coming in and it's like wow this you know that as a filmmaker that gives you a buzz right like holy moly people are really liking this and then you start reading what they're getting out of it and they're 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 you know, some of the scenes are working and you're even learning stuff about your own film. So that's been a blessing. You know, my hope is that more people do watch it. Uh, we, we haven't had as big of a launch as far as, as many people watching it. And maybe they think that part two uh, was unnecessary. Uh, typically, the documentaries don't have sequels. But the way that I view it, you know, is like when Ken Burns does a 20 hour documentary, but he just releases it at once. This is going to be a similar uh, body of work when we're done with it. It's just, you know, on in the conservative Christian, whatever this, this side of it, you know, we got to be a little bit more scrappy. You know, we are a little bit more independent. We don't have the Hollywood machine behind us. And so I would ask for Christians. I would ask for conservatives to support filmmakers write reviews, you know, watch the films because, uh, you know, my problem with conservatives is that we complain a lot about censorship. We complain a lot about the left. I mean, that's really all we do is we just follow the left and, and complain about them. We need to build our own platforms. And you're seeing that with, I mean, Daily Wire is doing some great stuff. Uh, Epic Times is doing some great stuff. Our distributor, Salem, they're putting their neck out there, releasing films like this, releasing books like Fault Lines, Woody Bauckham. Mm-hmm. But as conservatives, we need to support each other. You know, So I would ask uh, for people to watch these films you know, and, and, and go to it. So the response has been great. I hope that it picks up a little bit of momentum. Um, I know that we've been censored on all the platforms. Uh, so we're going to do everything we can, like your podcast and do as many podcasts as we can. But really, it's just going to come down to if you get something out of the film, if it moves you, you have to get on your phone. You have to write a review. You have to share it because that's where we're at right now. And I think Americans don't think that what has happened in China and in the East can happen here. They really feel, even though they can see it, they still feel like, well, it's never going to go all the way. It's we're never yeah. going to be, and that's not true. You know, America is very susceptible. We're we're pretty much there. I mean, we're we're really close to some tyranny that that we've never seen in this country. So, yeah. not to go on a rant about that, but I just I hope that conservatives can step up and support each other. Um even if you don't agree with everything, like you've got it, we've got to get our, we've got to build our own Hollywood. We've got to build our own media because the people that are against this country, they own our institutions. 
and they're getting their messaging out. So we need to get our messaging out. Well, Justin, just to echo that sentiment, I say that all the time as well. And I kind of, you know, got my marching orders from a Dennis Prager because he said something on one of his shows years ago where he's like, basically, like, I want to give people money that I like. And that's what he was saying is he's like, if you support what someone does, like give them your money, don't just give them your time and attention. Like you mentioned Daily Wire. I was a consumer of Daily Wire content for years and years and years before I gave them a dime of my money. And it's like, oh man, I don't know that that was the right thing to do because I got so much value. Same thing is true here, guys. Again, the the link will be in the show notes. You can check out Uncle Tom too. You can watch, you know, each film like, you know, in succession or you can watch them out of order. It doesn't really matter. You don't need to watch part one to understand part two. But I am interested about the future because you've already said here just a second ago about part three so i don't know if you want to do this because the ending of the film was kind of like a like for me i i like almost like it barely took my breath away not to be too hyperbolic and dramatic but at the end of uncle tom 2 you not so subtly tease that you know part three is coming and so i guess can you tell us what's coming because again i don't want to ruin the surprise for anybody but also when do you expect that to be released you know what can you tell us about part three are there going to be new cast members how many parts of uncle tom do you foresee kind of give us all the stuff you're comfortable sharing sure so um you know again we had so much material we went really far into the rabbit hole on part two and we just kept working and working and, and we looked up one day and we had you know, four and a half, five, maybe even five hours of just scenes. And we had gone so far in that we had become a little bit numb and a little bit not as shocked with the material because when you're editing, you're obviously going through the same thing over and over again. So you become a little desensitized to it. When we started showing some of the scenes to people, uh, what is in part two now was, was a little bit not old hat for us, but you know, we, we were, we were further in on the, on the shocking, on the shocking side of this history. So it was actually Larry Elder who, you know, kind of guided us back and said, let's meet people where they're at. Let's, you know, this is juicy material and you're going to lose people if you go too far ahead. Mm -hmm. So we decided that there was going to be a third installment where that's going to go is it's going to pick up, uh, you know, where part two leaves off. I mean, we, we kind of dropped some heavy stuff on people. People are having a little bit of trouble. Some people are having a little bit of trouble with it, but after a day or two, we're getting these messages. Like it's, you know, it took me a couple of days, but you know, and they're going back and they're watching it a second and a third and a fourth time. So we're going to pick up and get a little bit uh, deeper in, you know, the sixties, uh, now that we've explained Marxism, we've explained the history of communism in America, and you understand the ideologies a little bit more, now we can go in deeper and get a little bit more nuanced with that information. We can introduce new characters. We can you know, get into some of the people that were behind the civil rights movement, some of the people that were behind Tulsa. You know, mm. now that you, now, my goal for two was to explain the, the worldviews to just say there are there are two ways to go you know you can go with god or you can go with man it gets very convoluted and very nuanced after that but that's for me personally like those are your choices that's it you know and and so part three is going to go deeper um into the history where people are going to be more uh you know receptive and uh, able to understand the nuance and culture you know we tease the culture up like with the brandon tatum line but we really want to get into what happened to America at large culturally 
but what is blackness? Like why, why, when you think of black culture in America, why do you think, why does a certain image pop in your head? You know, like what, like this, this hip hop culture, um, like where does that come from? And people are going to be shocked to find out where this image of black America, uh, came from and who was behind it. So I think part two is, is, is the next step after part one. Uh, ABL did a review on part two. He said, I would watch part one first because you get your feet wet, but mm. part two is going to throw you in the deep end. Uh, I think part three is we're just going to, you know, keep meeting people where they're at and, 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 and adding to it. So for me as a director, I, you know, I'm committed to do a third. Um, you know, I think, I, I, you know, I've committed to do a third film. I think I'll probably be done with the uncle tom which is now becoming a franchise i guess mm. i'll be done with the uncle tom franchise after that um but who knows from there you know i mean again like ken burns uh you know he'll spend 20 30 hours on one film because he's telling a lot of history so maybe uncle tom will end up you know growing to be that large of a production uh we're just going at it you know how we can like we don't have an endowment to to spend seven years on a film you know we're using independent money and donations to to produce these one at a time so again i encourage people to to support us if you know if you if you want conservative films to be made and if you want us to keep going you know just stream it you know by by the thing that that helps us pay the team and, and keep making these films you know Absolutely. Get the word out to as many people as possible. I'm glad to hear that it's going to continue to go into the future. And my encouragement to you would be is to not take your foot off the gas. I know that there are times where it's like, okay, I don't know if we should push here or push there. But the first film, yes, I think that's an apt way of describing it, getting your feet wet. But the second film, it is, it's going to force seawater up your nose and like in a good way, because you're really going to have to reckon with the things that are said. So as we wind to a close here, Justin, I like to do something towards the end of some of my interviews. It's a lightning round. It's called, what would you say to someone that said? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, what would you say to someone that said, and then I'm going to fill in the blank. And regardless of what I say, you get a maximum of 30 seconds to answer my question. Okay. So this is full on lightning round. Got to get to a quick meat and potatoes. This sounds, uh, this sounds like what they'll use to take me out of context. Cause I told you I'm not an orator, right? So I'll, I'll, I'll play ball, but you know, I normally don't do the interviews like this. So, Hey, well, that's what I do. I'm all about making people as uncomfortable as possible. That's like good. one of my life hey, me, lessons. Okay, too, good. I guess. I guess you do it in the that, film right? version. I do it in the interview version. So let's do this awesome. first one. And let's just kind of ease into it here. What Alrighty. would you say to someone that said uncle Tom and uncle Tom two are racist films? Watch them and explain yourself. Fair enough. Let's keep going. What would you say to someone that said, Justin Malone simply can't understand the plight of blacks in America because he's white? That's silly. We're all human and we all come from struggle and pain and suffering. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, reparations must be paid in order for black people to be equal to white people? Uh, reparations have been paid through the welfare state and go to the neighborhoods where people receive reparations. Not a place that most people would want to live. All right. Next question here. What would you say to someone that said black people need more money, not more Jesus talk? Um, if you don't have a foundation and if you don't have more um, uh, morals and values, then you can't handle money properly. 
And if you don't drink uh, a living water, you will be thirsty again. We know that as well. What would you say to someone that said, we should all strive for equity? I would run away from anyone that, that says that and, and, and cut them out of your life completely. Um, that, that is uh, Marxist language, and it always ends in destruction. All right, just a few more left. We haven't gotten you canceled yet, so let's see if we can do it in the last three. What would you say to someone that said, Marxism will work, it just hasn't been done right yet? Uh, You're a silly fool. Not much more need be said on that one. Two more left. What would you say to someone that said, Black Lives Matter? Yes, I agree with that. I agree, Black Lives Matter. I agree, All Lives Matter. Ooh, that was super racist of you to say all lives matter. How dare you, Justin? Last one of the day. What would you say to someone that said Justin Malone is a racist? That's like your opinion, man. I don't, I don't know. Um, maybe they have said that. I don't know. I don't. I haven't. I don't know. This. Um, I'm sorry you feel that way. I, you know. Yeah, if somebody comes up and throws something like that in your face, especially if they don't have any receipts, it's not necessarily something you need to do to go out of your way to defend yourself. But Justin, I'm so thankful for the time that we've been able to spend together. I'm so glad uh, to meet you at the premiere of this film. I think it's a fantastic film. I think you've done a great job. I commend you and your team for the great work that you've done. But for now, that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No. Thank you for having me and thank you for supporting the film. It means a lot and uh, I hope your audience uh, enjoys it. Can't wait for part three. Justin Malone, thank you for coming on Daunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Justin Malone. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the only link I've got for you today is a link to where you can go and watch Uncle Tom 2. Guys, I could not recommend it more highly. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, Please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.